There does indeed seem to be a certain tang in the air, said the lecturer in recent rooms. Magic tastes like tin. Hold on a moment, said Ridcully. He reached up, pulled open one of the many drawers in his wizarding hat, and removed a cube of greenish glass. Here we are, he said, handing it to Ponder. Ponder took the thaumometer and peered into it. Never used it myself, Ridcully said. Wetting a finger and holding it up has always been good enough for me. It's not working, said Ponder, tapping the thaumometer as the ship rocked under them. The needles... Whoa! He dropped the cube, which was molten by the time it hit the deck. That's impossible, he said. These things are good up to a million thaums. Ridcully licked his finger and held it up. It sprouted a halo of purple and octarine. Yep, that's about right, he said. There's not that much magic anywhere anymore, shouted Ponder. There was a gale behind the boat now. Ahead, the wall of storm was widening and seemed to be a lot blacker. How much magic does it take to create a continent, said Ridcully. They looked up at the clouds and further up. We'd better batten down the hatches, said the dean. We don't have any hatches. Batten down Mrs Whitlow, at least. Get the bursar and the librarian somewhere safe. They hit the storm. Rincewind dropped into an alley and reflected that he'd been in far worse prisons. The Axians were a friendly lot, when not drunk or trying to kill you, or both. What Rincewind looked for in a good jail were guards who, instead of ruining everyone's night by prowling around the corridors, got together in one room with a few tins and a pack of cards and relaxed. It made it so much more friendly, and of course easier to walk past. He turned and there was the kangaroo, huge and bright and outlined against the sky. Rincewind shrank back for a moment, and then realised that it was nothing but an advertising sign on the roof of a building some way off and further down the hill. Someone had rigged up lamps and mirrors below it. It had a hat on, with some stupid holes for its ears to stick out, and it wore a vest as well. But it was certainly the kangaroo. No other kangaroo could possibly smirk like that, and it was holding a tin of beer. "'Where did you drift in from, Curly?' said a voice behind him. It was a very familiar voice. It had a sort of complaining wheedle in it. It was a voice that kept looking out of the corners of its eyes and was always ready to dodge. It was a voice you could have used to open a bottle of wine. He turned, and the figure in front of him, except for a few details, was as familiar as the voice. "'You can't be called Dibbler,' said Rincewind. "'Why not?' Because, well, how did you get here? What? I just came up Burke Street, said the figure. It had a large hat and large shorts and large boots. But in every other respect, it was the double of the man who, in Ark Morpork, was always there after the pub's shut to sell you one of his very special meat pies. Rincewind had a theory that there was a dibbler everywhere. Suspended from the neck of this one was a tray. On the front of the tray was written... Dibbler's Café Defeat. I reckon I'd better get up to the jail early for a good pitch, said Dibbler. Always gives the crowd an appetite, a good hanging. Can I interest you in anything, mate? Rincewind looked at the end of the alley. The streets were quite busy. As he watched, a couple of guards strolled by. Such as what? he said suspiciously, drawing back into the shadows. Got some good broadsheet ballads about the notorious outlaw they're going to top. No, thank you. Souvenir piece of the rope they're going to hang him with? Authentic? Rincewind looked at the short length of thick string being dangled hopefully in front of him. Some people might say that had a hint of clothesline about it, he said. Dibbler gave the string a look of extreme interest. Obviously, we had to unravel it a bit, mate, he said. And some people might pick holes in the suggestion that you could, philosophically speaking, sell lengths of rope before the hanging. Dibbler paused, his smile not moving. Then he said, It's the rope, right? Three-quarter inch hemp, the usual stuff, authentic. Probably even from the same rope maker. Come on. All I'm looking for here is a fair go. Probably it's a pure fluke this ain't the actual bit that's going to go around his neck. That's only half an inch thick. Look, I can see the label. It says Hills Clothesline Co. Does it? 
Once again, Dibbler appeared to be looking at his product for the first time. But the traditions of the Dibbler clan would never let a mere disastrous fact get in the way of a spiel. It's still rope, he averred. Authentic rope. Nah, no worries. How about some authentic native art? He rummaged in his crowded tray and held up a square of cardboard. Rincewind gave it an appraising look. He'd seen something like this out in the Red Country, although he'd not been certain that it was art in the way Ankh Morpork understood it. It was more like a map, a history book and a menu all rolled together. Back home, people tied a knot in their handkerchief to remind them of things. Out in the hot country, there weren't any handkerchiefs, so people tied a knot in their thoughts. They didn't paint very many pictures of a string of sausages. It's called Sausage and Chips Dreaming, said Dibbler. I don't think I've seen one like that, said Rincewind. Not with the sauce bottle in it as well. So what, said Dibbler, still native, genuine picture of traditional city tucker done by a native. A fair go, that's all I ask. Ah, oh, suddenly I think I understand. The native in this case, perhaps, being you, said Rincewind. Yep, authentic. You arguing? Oh, come on. What? I was born over there in Treacle Street, bludgery, and so was me dad, and me granddad, and his dad. I just didn't step off the driftwood like some people I might mention. His ratty little face darkened. Coming over here, taking our jobs. What about the little man, eh? All I'm asking for is a fair go. For a moment, Rincewind contemplated handing himself over to the watch. Nice to hear someone siding with the rights of the indigenous population, he muttered, checking the street again. Indigenous? What do they know about a day's work? Nah, they can go back where they came from too, said Dibbler. They don't want to work. Good thing for you, though. I can see that, said Rincewind. Otherwise, they'd be taking your job, right? The way I see it, I'm more indigenous than them, said Fargo, pointing an indignant thumb at himself. I earned my indigenuity, I did. Rincewind sighed. Logic could take you only so far, then you had to get out and hop. A fair go, that's what you want, he said. Am I right? Yep. So, is there anyone who you don't want to go back where they came from? Fair go, Dibbler, gave this some deep consideration. Well, me, obviously, he said. My mate Duncan, cos Duncan's me mate. And Mrs. Dibbler, of course. And some of the blokes down at the fish and chip shop. Lots of people, really. Well, I'll tell you what, said Rincewind. I definitely want to go back where I came from. Good on ya. Your socio-political analysis is certainly working on me. Beaut. And maybe you can show me how. Like where the docks are. Well, I would, said Dibbler, obviously torn, only there's going to be this hanging in a few hours and I want to get the meat pies warmed up. As a matter of fact, I heard the hanging had been cancelled, said Rincewind, conspiratorially. The bloke escaped. Never. He certainly did, said Rincewind. I'm not pulling your raw prawn. Did he have any last words? Um, goodbye, I think. You mean he wasn't in a famous last stand shootout with the watch? Apparently not. Huh. What kind of an escape is that? said Fargo. That's no way to behave. I didn't have to come up here. I gave up a good spot at the Galar for this. It's not a good hanging without a meat pie. He leaned closer and gave a furtive look both ways before continuing. Say what you like. The Galar's good for business. Their money's the same as anyone else's. That's what I say. Well, uh, yes, obviously. Otherwise it'd be, um, different money, said Rincewind. So, since your night's ruined, why not just show me where the docks are? There was still some uncertainty in Dibbler's stance. Rincewind swallowed. He'd faced spiders, angry men with spears, and bears that dropped on you out of trees... 
but now the continent was presenting him with its most dangerous challenge. "'Tell you what,' he said. "'I'll... I'll even... buy something off you.' "'The rope?' "'Not the rope. Um, not the rope. Um, I know this may seem a somewhat esoteric question, but uh, what's in the meat pies?' "'Meat. "'And what kind of meat?' "'Ah, you want one of the gourmet meat pies, then? "'Oh, I see. That's where you say what's in them.' "'Yep. Before or after the customers have bitten into them?' "'Are you suggesting that my pies ain't right?' "'Let us say I'm inching my way to the possibility that they might be, shall we? "'All right. I'll try a gourmet pie. "'Good on you.' Dibbler removed a pie from the little heated section of his tray. Mmm, now, what's the meat? Cat? Do you mind? Mutton's cheaper than cat, said Dibbler, upending the pie into a dish. Well, that's... Rincewind's face screwed up. Oh, no, you're pouring pea soup all over it, too. Why does everyone always pour pea soup over it? No worries, mate. Puts a lining in your stomach said Dibbler, producing a red bottle. And what's that? The cat de grass, mate. You are tipping a meat pie into a dish of pea soup and now you want me to eat it with tomato sauce on it? Pretty colours, ain't they? said Fargo, handing Rincewind a spoon. Rincewind prodded the pie. It rebounded gently off the side of the dish. Well, now he'd eaten cut-me-own-throat Dibbler's sausage in a bun and disembowel myself honourably Dibhala's funny-coloured antique eggs, and he'd survived, although there had been a few minutes when he'd hoped he wouldn't. He'd eaten Al Gibbler's highly suspicious couscous, drunk the terrible yak-butter tea made by may-I-never-achieve-enlightenment Diblang, forced down the topless, bottomless smorgasbord of Dib Diblonsons, and tried not to chew the lumps of unmentionable blubber pervaded by may-I-be-kicked-in-my-own-ice-hole Dibuki. His stomach heaved at the memory of that. After all, it was one thing to butcher dead beached whales, and quite another just to leave them there until they exploded into bite-sized chunks of their own accord. As for the green beer made by swallow-me-own-blow-dart Delang-Delang, he'd drunk and eaten all these things. Everywhere in the world, someone turned up out of some strange primal mould to sell him a really dreadful regional delicacy. And this was just a pie, after all. How bad could it be? No. Put it another way. How much worse could it be? He swallowed a mouthful. Good, eh? said Fargo. My gods, said Rincewind. They're not just any mushy peas said Fargo, slightly disconcerted by the fact that Rincewind was staring wildly at nothing. They're mushed by a champion pea musher. Good grief, said Rincewind. You're right, mister. It's... it's... everything I expected, said Rincewind. Nah, mister, it ain't that bad. You're certainly a dibbler. What kind of a thing is that to say? You put pies upside down in runny peas and then put sauce on them. Someone actually sat down one day after midnight, if I'm any judge, and thought that would be a good idea. No one will ever believe this one. Rincewind looked at the submerged pie. That's going to make the story about the land of the giant walking plum puddings look very tame, I don't mind telling you. No wonder you people drink so much beer. There is such a thing as an edible, nay, delicious meat pie floater. It's mushy peas of just the right consistency. It's tomato sauce piquant in its cheekiness. It's pie filling tending even towards named parts of the animal. There are platonic burgers made of beef instead of cow lips and hooves. There are fish and chips, where the fish is more than just a white goo, lurking at the bottom of a batter casing and you can't use the chips to shave with. There are hot dog fillings, which have more in common with meat than with mere pinkness, whose lucky consumers don't apply mustard because that would spoil the taste. 
It's just that people can be trained to prefer the other sort and seek it out. It's as if Machiavelli had written a cookery book. Even so, there is no excuse for putting pineapple on pizza. He stepped out into the flickering lamplight of the street, shaking his head. You actually eat the pies here, he said mournfully, and looked up into the face of the warder. There were several watchmen behind him. That's him! Rincewind nodded cheerfully. Good day, he said. Two little thuds were his homemade sandals bouncing on the street. The sea steamed, and crackling balls of lightning zipped across its surface like drops of water on a hot plate. The waves were too big to be waves, but about the right size for mountains. Ponder looked up from the deck only once, just as the boat began to slide down a trough that gaped like a canyon. Next to him, and gripping his leg, the dean groaned. "'You know about this sort of thing, Ponder,' he growled as they hit the trough, and then began the stomach-twisting climb to the next crest. Uh, "'Are we going to die?' "'I don't think so, Dean.' "'Pity.' Rincewind heard whistles blowing behind him by the time he reached the corner, but he never let that sort of thing worry him. This was a city. Cities were so much easier. He was a creature of cities. There were so many places to... Whistles started blowing up ahead as well. The crowds were thicker here, and most people were heading in the same direction. But Rincewind liked crowds to run through. As they pursued, he had novelty on his side and could shoulder his way past the unsuspecting, who then turned around and milled about and complained and were definitely not in the right frame of mind to greet the people following him. Rincewind could run through a crowd like a ball on a bagatelle board and always got an extra go. Downhill was best. That's where they generally put docks, so as to have them closer to the water. Dodging and ducking across the streets brought him suddenly to the waterside. There were a few boats there. They were on the small side for a stowaway, but there were running footsteps in the dark. These watchmen were too good. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. They weren't supposed to double back. They weren't supposed to think. He ran in the only direction left, along the waterfront. There was a building there. At least it... Well, it had to be a building. No one could have left an open box of tissues that big. Rincewind felt that a building should be a box with a pointed lid on it, basically, and it should be the approximate colour of whatever the local mud was. On the other hand, as the philosopher Lee Tin Weedle once remarked, it is never wise to object to the decor of a hidey-hole. He bounded up the steps and circled around the strange white building. It seemed to be some kind of music hall, Opera, by the sound of it, although it was a damn funny place to sing opera. You couldn't imagine ladies with horns in a building that looked about to set sail. But no time to wonder about that. There was a door with some rubbish bins outside it, and here was the door open. You from the agency, mate? Rincewind peered into the steam. And I hope you can do puddings, cos Sheffy's banging his head on the wall. Went on a figure emerging from the wisps. It was wearing a tall white hat. "'No worries,' said Rincewind, hopefully. "'Ah, this is a kitchen, is it?' "'You pulling my leg?' "'Only I thought it was some kind of opera house or something.' "'Best bloody opera house in the world, mate. "'Come on this way.' "'It wasn't a very big kitchen, "'and like most of the ones Rincewind had been in, "'it was full of men working very hard at cross-purposes. "'The boss upstairs only decided to throw a big dinner for the prima donna.' said the cook, forcing his way through the throng, and all of a sudden Charlie sees the pudding staring at him in the face. Ah, right, said Rincewind, on the basis that sooner or later he'd be given a clue. Boss says you can do the pudding for her, Charlie. Just like that, eh? He says it ought to be the best one yet, Charlie. No worries. He says the great Nunco invented the strawberry sackville for Dame Wendy Sackville and the famous chef Imposo created the apple glazier for Dame Margarine Glazier and your own father, Charlie, honoured Dame Janine Ormolu with the orange Ormolu and tonight, Charlie, it's your big chance. The cook shook his head as he reached a table where a small man in a white uniform was sobbing uncontrollably into his hands. There was a stack of empty beer cans in front of him. Poor bastard's been on the beer ever since, and we thought we'd better get someone in. I'm a steak and prawns man myself. So, you want me to make a pudding, named after an opera singer, said Rincewind. That's the tradition, is it? Yeah, 
And you'd better not let Charlie down, mate. It's not his fault. Oh, well, Rincewind thought about puddings. Basically, it was just fruit and cream and custard, wasn't it? And cakes and stuff. He couldn't see where the problem lay. No worries, he said. I think I can knock up something right away. The kitchen became silent as the scurrying cooks stopped to watch him. First, said Rincewind, what fruit have we got? Peaches was all we could find at this time of night. No worries. And we've got some cream? Yep, of course. Fine, fine. Then all I need to know is the name of the lady in question. He felt the silence open up. She's a beaut' singer, mind you, said a cook in a defensive tone of voice. Good. And her name, said Rincewind. Uh, that's the trouble, see, said another cook. Why? Ponder opened his eyes. The water was calm, or at least calmer than it had been. There were even patches of blue sky above, although cloud banks were crisscrossing the air as if each were in possession of its own bag of wind. His mouth tasted as though he'd been sucking a tin spoon. Around him, some of the wizards managed to push themselves to their knees. The dean frowned, removed his hat, and pulled out a small crab. It's a good boat, he muttered. The green mast stem still stood, although the leaf sail looked ragged. Nevertheless, the boat was tacking nicely against the wind off the continent. It was a red wall, glowing under the thunder light. Rid got uncertainly to his feet and pointed to it. Mm, not far now, he said. The dean actually growled. I've just about had enough of that insufferable cheerfulness, he said. So just shut up, will you? Enough of that? I am your arch-chancellor, Dean, said Ridcully. Well, let's just talk about that, shall we, said the Dean, and Ponder saw the nasty gleam in his eye. This is hardly the time, Dean. Exactly on what basis are you giving orders, Ridcully? You're the arch-chancellor of what, precisely? Unseen University doesn't even exist. Tell him, senior wrangler. I don't have to if I don't want to, sniffed the senior wrangler. What? What? snapped the dean. I don't believe I have to take orders from you, dean. When the bursar climbed up on deck a minute later, the boat was already rocking. It was hard to say how many factions there were, since a wizard is capable of being a faction all by himself, but there were broadly two sides, both liaisons being as stable as an egg on a seesaw. What amazed Ponder Stibbons when he thought about it later was that no one had yet resorted to using magic. The wizards had spent a lot of time in an atmosphere where a cutting remark did more damage than a magic sword, and for sheer malign pleasure, a well-structured memo could do more real damage than a fireball every time. Besides, no one had their staff, and no one had any spells handy, and in those circumstances it's easier to hit someone, although in the case of wizards, non-magical fighting usually means flailing ineffectually at the opponent while trying to keep out of his way. The bursar's fixed smile faded a little. I got three percent more than you in my finals. Oh, and how do you know that, Dean? I looked at the paper when you were appointed Arch-Chancellor. What? After forty years? An examination is an examination. Uh, the bursar began. Ye gods, that's pretty. That's just the sort of thing I'd expect from a student who even had a separate pen for red ink. Ha! At least I didn't spend all my time drinking and betting and staying out all hours. Huh! I bloody well did, yes, and I learned the ways of the world, and I still got nearly as many marks as you in spite of a prize-winning hangover, you... you puffed-up barrel of lard. Oh! Oh, it's personal remarks now, is it? Absolutely! Two chairs. Let's have some personal remarks. We always said that walking behind you made people seasick. I wonder if at this point, said the bursar, the air crackled around the wizards. A wizard in a foul temper attracts magic like overripe fruit gets flies. You think I'd make a better arch-chancellor, don't you, bursar? said the dean. The bursar blinked his watery eyes. I, uh, the, the, the two of you, um, many good points. Um, perhaps this is the time to make a common cause. They spent just a moment considering this. Well said, said the dean. 
got a point,' said Ridcully, "'because, you know, I've never liked the lecturer in recent rooms very much.' Mm. "'Smirks all the time,' Ridcully agreed. "'Not a member of the team.' "'Oh, really?' "'The lecturer in recent rooms put on a particularly evil smirk. "'At least I got higher marks than you, "'and am noticeably thinner than the dean, "'although a great many things are. "'Tell them, Stibbons.' "'That's Mr. Stibbons, fat man!' "'Ponder heard the voice. "'He knew it was his. "'He felt as though he was hypnotised. "'He could stop any time he liked. "'It was just that he didn't quite feel like it. Uh, "'Could I just say?' the bursar tried. "'Shut up, bursar!' roared Ridcully. "'Sorry, sorry, sorry!' "'Ridcully waved a finger at the dean. "'Now you... listen to me!' A crimson spark leapt off his hand, left a trail of smoke past the dean's ear, and hit the mast, which exploded. The dean took a deep breath, and when the dean took a deep breath, appreciably less air was left in the atmosphere. It was let out with a roar. "'You dare fire magic at me?' Ridcully was staring at his hand. Uh, "'But I... I... Ponder finally managed to force the words out between teeth that were trying to clamp together. Eh, magic's ejecting us. What? What are you gurgling about, man? said the lecturer in recent runes. I'll show you magic, you pompous clown, screamed the dean, raising both hands. It's the magic talking, Ponder managed, grabbing one arm. You don't want to blow the Arch-Chancellor to little pieces, Dean? Yes, I damn well do. Excuse me, I don't wish to intrude. Mrs Whitlow's head appeared at the hatchway. What is it, Mrs Whitlow? yelled Ponder, as a blast from the Dean's hand sizzled over his head. I know you are engaged on university business, but should there be all these cracks, the water is coming in. Ponder looked down. The deck creaked under his feet. We're sinking, he said. You stupid old... He bit down on the words. The boat is cracking up as fast as we are. Look, it's going yellow. The green was leaching from the deck like sunlight from a stormy sky. It's his fault, the dean screamed. Ponder raced to the side. There were crackling noises all around him. The important thing was to settle his mind and be calm and possibly think of nice things like blue skies and kittens. "'preferably ones which weren't about to drown. "'Listen,' he said, "'if we don't sink our differences, they'll sink us, understand? "'The boat's ripening or something, "'and we're a long way from land. "'Do you understand? "'And there could be sharks down there.' "'He looked down. "'He looked up. "'There's sharks down there!' he shouted. "'The boat tilted as the wizards joined him. "'Are there sharks, do you think?' said Ridcully. "'Could be tuna,' said the dean.' Behind them, the remains of the sail fell away. "'How can you reliably tell the difference?' said the senior wrangler. "'You could count their teeth on the way down,' sighed Ponder. "'But at least no one was throwing magic around any more. "'You could take the wizards out of Unseen University, "'but you couldn't take the university out of the wizards.' "'The boat listed still further as Mrs Whitlow looked over the side. "'What happens if we fall in the water?' she said. "'We must mm, devise a plan,' said Ridcully. "'Dean, form a working party to consider our survival in unknown mm, shark-infested waters, will you?' "'Should we swim for the shore?' said Mrs Whitlow. "'A was good at swimming as a girl.' Ridcully gave her a warm smile. "'All in good time, Mrs Whitlow,' he said. "'But your suggestion has been taken aboard.' "'It's going to be the only thing that is in a minute,' said Ponder. "'And what exactly will your role be, Arch-Chancellor?' the dean snarled. "'I have defined your objectives,' said Ridcully. "'It is up to you to consider the options. "'In that case,' said the dean, "'I move that we abandon ship.' "'What for?' said the Chair of Indefinite Studies. "'The sharks?' "'That is a secondary problem,' said the dean. "'That's right,' said Ponder. "'We can always vote to abandon shark.' "'The ship lurched suddenly.' The senior wrangler struck a heroic pose. "'I will save you, Mrs Whitlow,' he cried, and swept her off her feet, or at least made the effort. 
but the senior wrangler was lightly built for a wizard, and Mrs. Whitlow was a fine figure of a woman, and furthermore the wizard's grip was limited by the fact that there were very few areas of Mrs. Whitlow that he dared actually touch. He did his best with some outlying regions, and managed to lift her slightly. All this did was transfer the entire weight of wizard and housekeeper to the senior wrangler's quite small feet, which went through the deck like a steel bar. The boat, dry as tinder now, soft as wood punk, fell apart very gently. The water was extremely cold. Spray filled the air as they struggled. A piece of wreckage hit Ponder on the head and pushed him under, into a blue world where his ears went gloing, gloing. When he struggled to the surface again, this noise turned out to be an argument. Once again, the sheer magic of Unseen University triumphed. When treading water in a circle of sharks, a wizard will always consider other wizards to be the most immediate danger. Don't blame me. He was... well, I, I think he was asleep. You think? He was a mattress, a red one. He's the only librarian we've got. How could you be so thoughtless? shouted Ridcully. He took a deep breath and dived. Abandon sea, shouted the bursar cheerfully. Ponder shuddered as something big and black and streamlined rose out of the water in front of him. It sank back into the foam and flopped over. Other shapes were bobbing to the surface all around the frantically treading wizards. The dean tapped one. Well, these sharks don't seem anything like as dangerous as I expected, he said. They're the seeds out of the boat, said Ponder. Get on top of them quickly. He was sure that something had brushed his leg. In those circumstances, a man finds unexpected agility. Even the dean managed to get aboard aboard, after a revolving foamy period when man and seed fought for supremacy. Ridcully surfaced in a shower of spray. It's no good, he spluttered. I went down as far as I could. There's no sign of him. Try and get on a seed, Arch-Chancellor, do, said the senior wrangler. Ridcully flailed at a passing shark. They won't attack you if you make a lot of noise and splash around, he said. I thought that's when they will attack you, sir, Ponder called out. Ah, an interesting practical experiment, said the dean, craning to watch. Ridcully hauled himself onto one of the seeds. What a mess! I suppose we can float to land, though, he said. Er, uh, where's Mrs. Whitlow, gentlemen? They looked around. Oh, no! The senior wrangler moaned. She's swimming for the shore. They followed his gaze and could just see a hairdo moving jerkily yet determinedly towards the shore in what Ridcully would have probably referred to as a chest stroke. I don't call that very practical, said the dean. What about the sharks? Well, they're swimming around under us, in fact, said the senior wrangler as the seeds rocked. Ponder looked down. They appear to be leaving now that we're not dangling our legs in the water, he said. They're heading for the shore too. Well, she knew the risks when she got the job, said the dean. What? said the senior wrangler. Are you saying that before you apply for the job of housekeeper of a university, you should seriously consider being eaten by sharks on the shores of some mysterious continent thousands of years before you are born? She didn't ask many questions at the interview, I know that. Actually, we are worrying unduly, said the chair of indefinite studies. Sharks have a very undeserved reputation as man-eaters. There is not a single authenticated case of a shark attacking anyone, despite what you may have heard. They are sophisticated and peaceful creatures with a rich family life, and far from being ominous harbingers of doom, have reputedly even befriended the occasional lost traveller. As hunters, they are, of course, very efficient, and a full-grown shark can bring down even a moose with... with... Uh, he looked at their faces. Uh, I think I might perhaps have got them confused with wolves, he mumbled. I have, haven't I? They nodded in unison. Uh, sharks are the other ones, aren't they? He went on. The, uh, the uh, vicious and merciless killers of the sea that don't even stop to chew. They nodded again. Oh, dear. Uh, where can I put my face? Some distance from a shark said Ridcully briskly. Come on, gentlemen, that's our housekeeper. Do you wish to make your own beds in future? Fireballs again, I think. She's gone too far away. 
A red shape rocketed out of the sea beside Ridcully, curled through the air and slid below the surface again like a razor blade cutting into silk. What was that? Who of you did that? he said. A bow wave ripped its way to the cluster of triangular fins like a bowling ball heading down an alley. Then the water erupted. Ye gods, look at the way it's going at those sharks. Is it a monster? It's a dolphin, surely. With red hair? Surely it's not. A stricken shark barreled past the senior wrangler. Behind it, the water exploded again into the big red grin of the only dolphin ever to have a leathery face and orange hair all over its body. Ook, said the librarian. Well done, old chap, shouted Ridcully across the water. I said you wouldn't let us down. No, actually, you didn't, sir. You said you thought, Ponder began. Good choice of shape, too, Ridcully continued loudly. Now, if you can sort of nudge us all together, then perhaps you could push us towards the shore. Are we all still here? Where's the bursar? The bursar was a small dot away on the right, paddling dreamily along. Well, he'll get there, said Ridcully. Come along, let's get on to dry land. That sea, said the senior wrangler nervously, staring ahead as the seeds were jockeyed towards the shore like a string of overloaded barges. That sea... Does it look as though it's girting to you? Certainly it's a, a very big sea, said the lecturer in recent runes. You know, I don't think it's just the rain that's making the roaring. There may be a, <clears throat> a spot of surf. A few waves won't do us any harm, said Ridcully. At least water is soft. Ponder felt the board underneath him rise and fall as a long swell passed. An odd shape for a seed, he had to admit. Of course, nature paid a lot of attention to seeds, equipping them with little wings and sails and flotation chambers and other devices necessary to give them an edge over all other seeds. These were just flattish versions of the librarian's current shape, which was obviously intended for moving through water very fast. Eh, he said to the universe in general. It meant, I wonder if we've really thought about this. Can't see any rocks ahead, the dean observed. Girting mused the senior wrangler, as if the word was nagging at him. That's a very definite sort of word, isn't it? Has a certain martial sort of sound. It occurred to Ponder that water is not exactly soft. He'd never been much of a one for sports when he was a boy, but he remembered playing with the other local lads and joining in all their games, such as push Ponzi Stibbons into the nettles or tie up Stibbo and go home for tea. And there had been the time at the old swimming hole when they'd thrown him in off the top of the cliff, and it had hurt. The flotilla gradually caught up with Mrs Whitlow, who was holding on to a floating tree and treading water. The tree already had its fair share of occupants, birds, lizards, and for some reason a small camel trying to make itself comfortable in the branches. The swell was heavier now. There was a deep, continuous booming underlying the noise of the rain. "'Ah, Mrs Whitlow,' said the senior wrangler, "'and what a nice tree! Even got leaves on, look!' "'We've come to save you,' said the dean in the face of the evidence. "'I think it might be a good idea if Mrs Whitlow hung on to a seed,' said Ponder. "'I really think that really might be a really good idea. "'I think the waves uh, might be slightly big.' "'Girting,' said the senior wrangler morosely. He looked towards the beach, and it wasn't ahead of them any more. It was down there. It was at the bottom of a green hill, and the green was made of water, and for some reason it was getting taller. Look, said Rincewind, why can't you tell me her name? Presumably lots of people know it. I mean, it must be put on the posters and so on. It's only a name, isn't it? I don't see the problem. The cooks looked at one another. Then... One coughed and said, She's, well, her name is, uh, Dame Nelly. But. But what? Her name is But. Rincewind's lips moved silently. Oh, he said. The cooks nodded. Has Charlie drunk all the beer, do you think? Rincewind said, sitting down. Maybe we can find some bananas, Ron, said another cook. Rincewind's eyes unfocused and his lips moved again. Did you tell Charlie that, he said at last. 
Yep. Just before he broke down. There was the sound of running feet outside. One of the cooks looked out of the window. It's just the watch, probably after some poor bastard. Rincewind moved back slightly so that he was not obvious from the window. Ron shuffled his feet. I reckon if we went and saw idle Ahmed and got him to open up his shop, we might get some... Strawberries, said Rincewind. The cooks shuddered. There was another sob from Charlie. All his life's been waiting for this, said a cook. I call it bloody unfair. Remember when that little soprano left to marry the drover? He was miserable all week. Yeah, Lisa Delight, said Ron. A bit wobbly in mid-range, but definitely showing promise. He was really pinning his hopes on her. He said a name like that had even worked with rhubarb. Charlie howled. I think, said Rincewind, slowly and thoughtfully. Yes, I think I can see a way. You can? Even Charlie raised his head. Well, you know how it is. The outsider sees most of the game. Let's go with the peaches, the cream, a bit of ice cream if you can make it, maybe a dash of brandy. Let's see now. Coconut flakes, said Charlie, looking up. Yes, why not? Er, uh, some tomato sauce, maybe? Uh, I think not. You'd better get a move on there halfway through the last act, said Ron. She'll be all right, said Rincewind. OK, halve the peaches, put them in a bowl with the other things, and then add the brandy, and voila! That's some kind of foreign stuff, said Charlie. I don't think we got any of that. Voila! Just add twice as much brandy, then, said Rincewind. And there it is. Yeah, but what's it called, said Ron. I'm coming to that, said Rincewind. Bowl, please, Charlie, thank you. He held it aloft. Gentlemen, I give you the Peach Nelly. A saucepan bubbled on a stove. Apart from that insistent little noise and the distant strains of the opera, the room fell silent. What do you think? said Rincewind brightly. It's different, said Charlie. I'll grant you that. But it's not exactly commemorative, is it? said Ron. The world is full of Nellies. On the other hand, would you prefer it if everyone remembered the alternative, said Rincewind. Do you want to be associated in any way with the peach But There was a howl as Charlie burst into tears again. Put like that doesn't sound too bad, said Ron. Peach Nelly, yeah. You could use bananas, said Rincewind. Ron's lips moved silently. Nah, he said, let's go with the peaches. Rincewind brushed himself off. Glad to be of service, he said. Tell me, how many ways are there out of here? Busy night for everyone, what with the galah and everything, said Ron. Not my taste, of course, but it does bring in the visitors. Yeah, and the hanging in the morning, said Charlie. I was planning to miss that, said Rincewind. Now, if you'll just... I, for one, hope he escapes, said Charlie. I'm with you on that, said Rincewind. Heavy boots walked past the door and stopped. He could hear distant voices. They say he fought a dozen policemen, said Ron. Three, said Rincewind. It was three, I heard. Um, so someone told me, not a dozen, three. There, yeah, got to be more than three, got to be a lot more than three for a bold bush ranger like that one. Rinso, they call him. I heard where this bloke arrived from Did You Bring A Beer Along and said Rinso sheared a hundred sheep in five minutes. Oh, I don't believe that, said Rincewind. They say he's a wizard, but that can't be true, cos you never catch one of them doing a proper job of work. Well, in fact, all right, but a bloke who works up at the jail says he's got this strange brown stuff, which gives him enormous strength. It was only beer soup, shouted Rincewind. I mean, he added, that's what I heard. Ron gave him a lopsided look. You look a bit like a wizard, he said. Someone knocked heavily on the door. You're wearing those dresses they wear, Ron went on without taking his eyes off Rincewind. Go and open the door, Sid. Rincewind backed away, reached behind him to a table laden with knives and found his fingers closing on a handle. Yes, he hated the idea of weapons. They always, always upped the ante, but they did impress people.
The door opened, several men peered in, and one of them was the jailer. That's him! I warn you, I'm a desperate man, Rincewind said, bringing his hand around. Most of the cooks dived for cover. That's a ladle, mate, said a watchman kindly, but bloody plucky all the same. Good on you. What do you think, Charlie? I reckon it's never going to be said that a bold larrikin like him was run to earth in a kitchen of mine, said Charlie. He picked up a cleaver in one hand and the dish of peach nelly in the other. You nip out of the door, Rinso, and we'll talk to these policemen. Suits us, said the watchman. It's not a proper last stand, just having a punch up in a kitchen. We'll give you a count to ten, all right? Once again, Rincewind felt that he hadn't been given the same script as everyone else. You mean... You've got me cornered and you aren't going to arrest me, he said. Well, it wouldn't look good in the ballad, would it, said the guard. You've got to think about these things. He leaned on the doorway. Now there's the old post office in Groot Street. I reckon a man could hold out for two, maybe three days there, no worries. Then you could run out, we shoot you full of arrows, you utter some famous last words, kids will be learning about you in school in a hundred years' time, I'll bet. And look at yourself, will you? He stepped forward, ignoring the deadly ladle, and prodded Rincewind's robe. How many arrows is that going to stop, eh? You're all mad. Charlie shook his head. Everyone likes a battler, mister. That's the Axian way. Go down fighting. That's the ticket. Well, you heard about you taking on that road, gang, said the guard. Bloody good job. Man who'd do a job like that ain't going to be hanged. He's going to want to make a famous last stand. The men had all entered the kitchen now. The doorway was clear. "'Has anyone ever had a famous last run?' said Rincewind. "'Nah. What's one of them?' "'Good day.' As he sped away along the darkened waterfront, he heard the shout behind him. "'That's the ticket. We'll count to ten. He glanced up as he ran and saw that the big sign over the brewery seemed to be dark. And then he realised that something was hopping along just behind him. "'Oh, no, not you.' "'Good day,' said Scrappy, drawing level. Look at the mess you've got me into. Mess? You were going to be hanged. Now you're enjoying the healthy, fresh air in a God's own country. And I'm going to be shot full of arrows. So you can dodge arrows. This place needs a hero. Champion shearer, road warrior, bush ranger, sheep stealer, horse rider. All you need now is to be good at some damn silly bat and ball game and no one's invented yet, and maybe build a few tall buildings with borrowed money, and you'd have a full house. They ain't going to kill you in a hurry. That's not much comfort. Anyway, I didn't do any of that stuff. Well, I mean, I did, but it's what people think that matters. Now they believe you waltz out of a locked cell. All I did doesn't matter. The number of jailers who want to shake you by the hand. Well, I reckon they wouldn't get around to hanging you by lunchtime. Listen, you giant jumping rat. I've made it to the docks, OK? I can outrun them. I can lie low. I know how to stow away, throw up, get discovered, be thrown over the side, stay afloat for two days by clinging onto an old barrel and eating plankton sieved through my beard, carefully negotiate the treacherous coral reef surrounding an atoll, and survive by eating yams. That's a very special talent you got there, said the kangaroo, bounding over a ship's hawser. How many Axian ships have you ever seen in Ankh-Morpork? Busiest port in the world, ain't it? Rincewind slowed. Well, it's the currents, mate. Get more than ten miles off of the coast here, and there ain't one captain in a hundred who can stop his ship going right over the rim. They stick very close inshore. Rincewind stopped. You mean this whole place is a prison? Yep. But the Axians say this is the best bloody place in the world, so there's no point in going anywhere else anyway. There were shouts behind him. The guards here didn't take so long counting to ten as most guards did. What are you going to do now? said Rincewind. The kangaroo had gone. He ducked down a side street and found his way completely blocked. Carts filled the street from edge to edge. Gaily decorated carts. Rincewind paused. He had always been the foremost exponent of the from rather than the to of running. He could have written the from of running, but just occasionally a certain subtle sense told him that the to was important. For one thing, a lot of people standing and chatting around the carts were wearing leather. You could make a lot of arguments in favour of leather. It was long-lasting, practical and hard-wearing. 
people like Cohen the Barbarian found it so hard-wearing and long-lasting that their old loincloths had to be removed by a blacksmith. But the people here didn't look as if these were the qualities that they'd been looking for in the boutique. They'd asked questions like, how many studs has it got? How shiny is it? Has it got holes cut out in unusual places? But still, one of the most basic rules for survival on any planet is never to upset someone wearing black leather. This is why protesters against the wearing of animal skins by humans unaccountably failed to throw their paint over Hell's Angels. Rincewind sidled politely past them, giving them a friendly nod and a wave whenever he saw one looking in his direction. For some reason, this caused more of them to take an interest in him. There were groups of ladies, too, and there was no doubt that if XXXX was where a man could stand tall, so could a woman. Some of them were nevertheless very pretty, in an overstated kind of way, although the occasional moustache looked out of place, but Rincewind had been to foreign parts and knew that things could be a bit lush in the more rural regions. There were more sequins than you usually saw. More feathers, too. And then it dawned on him in a great rush of relief. Oh, this is a carnival, right? he said aloud. This is the galah they keep talking about. Pardon you? said a lady in a spangly blue dress, who was changing the wheel on a large purple cart. These are carnival floats, aren't they? said Rincewind. The woman gritted her teeth, rammed the new wheel into place and then released the axle. The cart bounced down onto the cobbles. Damn, I think I broke a nail on that, she said. She glanced at Rincewind. Yeah, this is the carnival. That dress has seen better days, hasn't it? Nice moustache. Shame about the beard. It'll look good with a tint. Rincewind glanced back down the street. The floats and the press of people were hiding from view, but this wouldn't last long. Er, uh, could you help me, madam? he said. Er, um, the watch are after me. They can be so tiresome like that. There was a misunderstanding over a sheep. They're so often ease, mate. She looked Rincewind up and down. You don't look like a country boy, I must say. Me? <laughs> I get nervous when I see a blade of grass, miss. She stared at him. You haven't been here very long, have you, Mr. Uh, Rincewind, ma'am? Well, get on the cart, Mr. Rincewind. My name's Letitia. She held out a rather large hand. He shook it and then tried surreptitiously to massage some blood back into his fingers as he scrambled up. The purple cart had been decorated with huge swathes of pink and lavender and what looked like roses made out of paper. Boxes, also covered in cloth, had been set up in the centre to give a sort of raised dais. What do you think? said Letitia. The girls worked all arvo. The scheme was a bit too feminine for Rincewind's taste, but he'd been brought up to be polite. He snuggled down as far out of view as possible. Very nice, he said. Very gay. Glad you think so. Up ahead somewhere, a band started to play. There was a stirring as people got onto the floats or formed up to march. A couple of women climbed up into the purple cart, all sequins and long gloves, and stared at Rincewind. What the... one began. Darlene, we have to talk, said Letitia from the front of the cart. Rincewind watched them go into a huddle. Occasionally one of them would raise her head and give him an odd look, as if she was reassuring herself that he was here. Fine big girls they had here, though. He wondered where they got their shoes from. Rincewind was not intensively familiar with women. Quite a lot of his life that hadn't been spent at high speed had been passed within the walls of Unseen University, where women were broadly put in the same category as wallpaper or musical instruments. Interesting in their way, and no doubt a small but important part of the proper structure of civilization, but not when you got right down to it essential. On these occasions, when he had spent some time in the intimate company of a woman, it was generally when she was trying to either cut his head off or persuade him to a course of action that would probably get someone else to do it. When it came to women, he was not, as it were, capable of much fine-tuning. A few neglected instincts were telling him that something was out of place, but he couldn't work out what it was. The one addressed as Darlene strode down the cart with a decisive and rather aggressive air. Rincewind pulled his hat off respectfully. "'Are you coming the raw prawn?' she demanded. Me? Certainly not, miss. No prawns at all. If I can just lie low until we're a few streets away, that's all I ask. You know what this is, don't you? Yes, miss. The carnival, Rincewind swallowed. No worries there. Everyone likes dressing up, don't they? But are you telling me you really think, I mean, we... 
What are you staring at my hair for? Er, uh, I was wondering how you get it so sparkly. Are you on the stage at all? We're moving, girls, Letitia called back. Remember, pretty smiles. Leave him alone, Darlene. You don't know where he's been. The third woman, the one the others had called Neolette, was watching him curiously, and Rincewind felt that there was something not right about her. Her hair wasn't drab, but it certainly appeared to be when compared with that of her colleagues. She didn't seem to have enough makeup. She seemed, in short, slightly out of place. Then he caught sight of a watchman ahead and flung himself below the edge of the cart. A gap in the boards gave him a view, as the cart turned the corner, of the waiting crowds. He'd been to quite a number of carnivals, although not usually on purpose. He'd even attended Fat Lunchtime in Genua, generally regarded as the biggest in the world, although he vaguely recalled that he'd been hanging upside down under one of the floats in order to escape pursuers. But right now he couldn't quite remember why he'd been chased, and it was never wise to stop and ask. Although Rincewind had covered quite a lot of the disc in his life, most of his recollections were like that, a blur, not through forgetfulness, but uh, because of speed. This looked like the usual audience. A real carnival procession should only take place after the pubs have been open for a good long time. It adds to the spontaneity. There were cheers, whistles, jeers and catcalls. Up ahead, people were blowing horns. Dancers whirled past Rincewind's peephole. He sat back and pulled a swathe of taffeta over his head. This sort of thing always took up a lot of watch time, what with pickpockets and so on. He'd wait until they were in whatever bit of waste ground these things always ended up in and drop quietly out of sight. He glanced down. These ladies were certainly into shoes in a big way. They had hundreds, hundreds of shoes, all lined up, peeking out from under a heap of women's clothing. Rincewind looked away. There was probably something morally wrong about staring at women's clothes without women in them. His head turned back and looked at the shoes again. He was sure that several of them had moved. A bottle shattered near his head. Glass showered around him. Up above, Darlene uttered a word he'd never have expected on the lips of a lady. Rincewind raised his head cautiously, and another bottle bounced off his hat. "'Some hoonies having a bit of fun,' said Darlene through gritted teeth. "'There's always some joker. Oh, really?' "'Give us a kiss, mister,' said a young man who'd leapt up onto the edge of the cart, waving a beer can happily. Rincewind had seen some serious fighters in action, but no one had ever swung a punch like Darlene. Her eyes narrowed, her fist seemed to travel in a complete circle, it met the man's chin about halfway round, and when he disappeared from the wizard's view, he was still rising. "'Will you look at that?' Darlene demanded, waving her hand at Rincewind. "'Ripped! These evening gloves cost a fortune, the bastard!' A beer can sailed past her ear. Did you see who threw that? Did you? I saw you, you mazza. I'll stick me hand down your throat and pull your trousers up. The crowd roared their appreciation and derision at the same time. Rincewind caught sight of watchman's helmets heading purposefully towards them. Um, he said. Hey, that's him. That's Rinso, the bush ranger, someone yelled, pointing. It wasn't bushes. It was just a sheep. Rincewind wondered who'd said that and realised it was him. And there was no escape, and the watchmen were looking up at him, and there was really no escape. The street was packed. There was another fight further up the procession. There were no nearby alleyways, the fugitive's friend. And the watchmen were fighting their way through the throng with great difficulty, and the crowd were having the time of their lives, and the huge kangaroo beer sign gleamed overhead. This was it, then. Time for a famous last stand. "'What?' he said aloud. "'It's never time for a famous last stand.' "'He turned to Letitia. "'I should just like to thank you for trying to help me,' he said. "'It's a pleasure to meet some real ladies for once.' "'They looked at one another. "'The pleasure's all ours,' said Letitia. "'Such a change to meet a real gentleman, isn't it, girls?' "'Darlene kicked a fishnet leg at a man trying to climb on the cart, "'causing with a stiletto heel what bromide in your tea "'is reputed to take several weeks to achieve.' "'Too bloody true,' she said. "'Rincewind leapt from the cart, landed on someone's shoulder, "'jumped again very briefly onto someone's head. "'It worked. "'Provided you kept moving, it really worked. "'A few hands grabbed him, and one or two cans were thrown, "'but there were also plenty of cries of, "'Good on ya!' and, "'That's the way!' 
At last, there was an alley. He jumped down from the last obliging shoulder and changed leg gear, and then found that the best way to describe the alley was as a cul-de-sac. The worst way was as an alley with three or four watchmen in it who ducked in for a smoke. They gave him that look of harassed policemen everywhere, which said that as an unwelcome intruder into their brief smoko, he was definitely going to be guilty of something. And then light dawned in the face of their sergeant. That's him. Out in the street, people started yelling and screaming. These were not the beery shouts of the carnival. People were in real pain out there. They were also pressing in so tightly that there was no way out. I can explain everything, said Rincewind, half aware of the growing noise. Well, most things. Some things, certainly. A few things. Look, about this sheep. Something brilliant passed over his head and landed on the cobbles between him and the guards. It looked rather like a table wearing an evening dress, and it had hundreds of little feet. They were wearing high heels. Rincewind rolled into a ball and put his hands over his head, trying to block his ears until the noise had died away.